If you're visiting with us this morning, my name is David. I have the privilege of sharing uh, the teaching with you this morning. Uh, if you're visiting, just so you know, our senior pastor is uh, not with us for a few months. He's uh, taking uh, some time to be uh, to heal and to recover and to be treated. And uh, so if you have any questions about that, you can talk to any of the church leaders. But uh, it's my privilege to share the word in place of my dad this morning. So... I'm a pretty, most of you know this about me by now, I'm a pretty competitive person. <clears throat> uh, I don't like to lose. I don't like my teams losing. Uh, I don't always handle it uh, graciously. And sometimes people ask me, where did you get your competitive nature from, your mom or your dad? And uh, I, I think they both are a little bit competitive, but if you've ever seen my mom and her sisters play phase 10, <laughs> or sequence, or rook, you're going to find that uh, my competitive streak primarily came from my mother. Now, she's much more gracious than I am in her competitiveness, uh, but uh, we all really competitive. Our family is competitive. I'm competitive. Lisa's competitive. Joshua uh, is competitive. And growing up, Lisa and I were only two years apart from each other. Well, I mean, we still are. And uh, uh, we, we would play board games together. This was pre- PS3, pre, even pre-Nintendo when I was little. And uh, we would play board games together. But we were so competitive that my, my memories of playing board, kids, board games as a child is that we almost never finished them. Because at some point, one of us would realize we're going to lose. And the only way to avoid losing at that point is to quit. Or to claim that the other person's cheating, or to accidentally kick the battleship board over, you know. So uh, we didn't finish a lot of our games. Um, but one of the games we played when when we were little, I don't know if you if they even still sell this game or if you remember this game. It's a game called Othello, and it's a pretty simple game. The premise is very easy. There's chips, and one side is white, and the other side is black, and and you you have a color assigned to you, and you you convert the other person's chips to your color by surrounding them with your Chips, and at the end of the game, whichever color is most prominent on the board wins. Othello has a tagline that I've always, uh, I've never forgotten, and it's this A minute to learn, a lifetime to master. A minute to learn, a lifetime to master. When I think of that phrase, I think of the gospel. The gospel is a simple truth, it's really quite simple. A child can understand the gospel, but it's a lifetime of letting it work itself out in your life. It's a lifetime of getting it consistently from your head to your heart. And for the next 10 weeks, we're going to go on a journey together of answering one question. It's the question, what is the gospel? Each and every week, whoever is teaching that morning will present you with one short, memorable, and hopefully memorizable statement. And I think our goal is, is at the end of the 10 weeks, you will have internalized 10 statements about the gospel. So if someone were to ever ask you, what is the gospel? You would be able to say, well, I know 10 things that the gospel is. And so that's what we're going to do for the next 10 weeks. Now, you might be wondering, why the gospel? Out of everything you, we could have chose, why the gospel and why 10 weeks. 10 weeks scares people. People don't like to commit to things. Why not four weeks, but 10 weeks of hearing about this? Well, let me share a couple of quotes uh, with you from a, a reformer of the church, Martin Luther. 
He said that the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge for all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. (laughs) That always reminds me of that game at the arcades where you have the little hammer and you're smacking the little heads of those little pop, what is that game called? Mole, whack-a-mole, whack-a-mole. Reminds me of whack-a-mole. The gospel is something that we have to beat over each other's head continually. He also said that the gospel cannot be preached and heard enough, for it cannot be grasped well enough. Moreover, our greatest task as pastors and ministers is to keep you faithful to the gospel and to hand this treasure to you when we die. So the gospel. This morning, here's your phrase for this morning. It's simply this, that the gospel is unique and central to Christianity. What is the gospel? Week one, here it is. The gospel is unique and it's central to Christianity. If I were to go up to you after services say, today and say, hey, let's, let's go to lunch. What do you want to eat? Ah, oh, let's go get a burger. I could go for a good burger. I know a lot of us are fasting, and so sorry to do that to you. Uh, but let's, let's go get a burger. Now, when I say burger, I have narrowed it down a little bit for you, right? We're not going to the Olive Garden. We're not going to any Mexican restaurants. We're not going to the Chinese buffet. But there's still a lot of places we could be going. But if I said to you, let's get a Whopper, then there's no question other than why are we going to Burger King. But there's, there's no question where we're going for lunch. There are certain things that are unique, right? The Whopper is unique to Burger King. The Blizzard is unique to Dairy Queen. The, 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 the Frosty is unique to Wendy's, yes. Violent vomiting is unique to Taco Bell. Like, you, you, get, you, get, you get the idea. So there, there are certain things that are, that are unique. Some things are unique. And the gospel is unique to Christianity. When we talk about the gospel, there should be no confusion what worldview, what religion, what belief system we're talking about. Only Christianity has the gospel. Now, there are people who think and say, and you probably have friends and family that might say this to you, oh, all religions are the same. They're all basically the same, and they lump all religions together. They basically say there's nothing truly unique about any of them, and there's nothing that makes one more true or, or, or better than the other. All religions ultimately worship the same God. They all lead to the same place. They all believe the same basic things. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard somebody say something like that, that all religions basically are the same? In 2010, New York Times bestselling author Stephen Prothero, who's not a Christian, he, he, he wrote a book entitled, God is Not One. Zero, uh, one, O-N-E. God is Not One. And the premise of his book is that there are eight main world religions. And his premise is this, they are not compatible with each other. They're not the same. Uh, for example, only three of the world's major religions are actually monotheistic, which means only three of the world's major religions actually believe in one God, Christians, Jews, and Muslims. They're really the only monotheistic religions in the world. Other religions are polytheistic, which believe in many gods. 
are pantheistic, which believes that God is kind of in everything. And so to say that these religions, and religions really are a a set of truth claims. There's things that we are claiming to be truth. So to say that these religions or that these set of truth claims are all equally true is not actually a statement of humility or a statement of tolerance, like people want it to sound. It's actually a statement of startling arrogance. And here's why. Because to say that is in and of itself a truth claim. And so, not just any truth claim, though. It's the one that claims to have a higher perspective than all the other truth claims combined. Let me explain. If I want to convince you that every path at the bottom of a mountain leads to the same place at the top, what perspective do I need to be able to say that with any sort of confidence? I have to be at the top of the mountain. That's the only way I can really know that every single path leads to the same place. So when somebody says all religions lead to the same thing, it's all the same, it's all the same God, they're actually saying, I know more than everybody combined because I'm at the top of the hill, and from my view, from my vantage point, there's no difference. You're all going to get to the same place. And in his book, Prothero proposes that each of the eight world religions, eight main world religions, is centered around a problem and a solution. Let me give you some examples. This is what he says. The problem in Islam is pride, and the solution is submission. The problem in Judaism is exile, and the solution is return. In Buddhism, it's suffering that's overcome by awakening. In Confucianism, uh, you're taught that chaos is resolved through social order. So every world religion says, here's the biggest problem that plagues humankind, and here's the solution. And in his book, he suggests that when it comes to Christianity, the problem is sin, and the solution is salvation. I think he's probably right. But whether we agree with his definition or not, one thing becomes very clear as you read his book. These religions are not the same. They are not identical. They do not believe in the same gods. There is something truly unique about Christianity. And this morning we're going to see that the gospel is the thing that is unique and central to Christianity. So let's look at this text in Romans chapter 10. Paul uh, is writing here. In verse 9 he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. Let me read that again. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, Anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jews and Gentiles are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who give generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This passage shows us three things. It shows us what the gospel is. It shows us how it's unique. And it shows us how it's central. Let's talk about it this morning. First off, what is the gospel? Well... The heart of the gospel is found in the truth claim in verse 9 where it says two things. Jesus is Lord and God has raised him from the dead. That's the heart of the gospel. Jesus is Lord and God has raised him from the dead. Do you notice that there's a mix of verb tenses there? There's the present tense, Jesus is Lord. And then there's the past tense, God raised him from the dead. It's a mix of verb tenses. And Paul does this on purpose because here's what the gospel is. The gospel is something that has happened, past tense, but has ongoing effect, 
present tense, okay? That's one thing you have to understand about the gospel. It is something that happened. The gospel is a historical event. It is something that we have faith in, but we don't only have faith in. We actually have a lot of historical evidence that a man named Jesus Christ came and lived on this earth and died on a cross, and that three days later, they couldn't find his body. And of course, the evidence of the impact of his life is still seen even around you this morning. See, God raised him from the dead, so it's based on something that happened, but it's, it's, it has far-reaching effect. The gospel is about what Jesus did. Uh, Jesus came to earth as a human to live a life you and I could never have lived, to die a death that you and I should have died. And then on the third day, God raised him from the dead, proving his victory over death and the grave and ensuring that the payment of the cross was sufficient and full. If the payment of the cross wasn't full, then Jesus couldn't walk out of the grave, but because he paid the debt, he could. His death speaks for us, and his life speaks for us. Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, but the Bible says he never sinned. So what this means is that his life, his perfection, his perfect performance record, his resume, his righteousness, it can be yours if you hope in him. We receive his work on our behalf. So Jesus came to save us. But Jesus didn't just come to be our savior. Jesus came to be our Lord. And this is what Paul is proclaiming, that the gospel is not that just that Jesus saved us, but that the gospel is that Jesus is now our Lord. Now, what does that mean? Jesus is our Lord. It means that he reigns and rules over our lives. He reigns and rules over our hearts, over our passions. He reprioritizes our lives. He reorganizes our desires. He is the one who reigns over all. In other words, simple terms, he calls the shots. He is the Lord. But isn't it true that in our human nature, there's almost nothing we want less than someone telling us what to do, right? I've seen it with my own children. Like, they don't want to be told when to go to bed. They don't want to be told what to wear. They don't want to be told to eat their vegetables. We just don't want anybody telling us anything. Think about it. If there's a sign that says, wet paint, don't touch. It takes all of your self-control not to just take one little finger and go, is that really wet paint? Like, am I really not supposed to? Because it's just in our nature. It says, don't walk on the lawn. All of a sudden, a lawn that we had no interest in walking on is now like, I need to walk on that lawn. I wonder why they don't want us to walk on that lawn. And so it's in our nature to say, nothing will be my Lord. Nothing will tell me what to do. Nothing will tell me where to go. Any of those things. So with that true, why make Jesus a Lord? Why make him your Lord? And the reason is, is because in the gospel, we find that what Jesus did for us was both true and beautiful. In other words, it satisfies us both objectively, it's true, and subjectively. So it's not just factual, but when we begin to actually see and understand what he did, it begins to melt and move our hearts. And that's what we really need. We need our hearts to be melted and moved. Otherwise, we'll never make Jesus Lord. Jesus accomplished for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. And that's the truth of the gospel that we must know in our heads and beat over each other's heads repeatedly. But it becomes beautiful in our hearts when we see Jesus giving up heaven for us. Giving up heaven for us. Laying it down to come. Descending to be a human. To, 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 to not just be a human, but to basically be poor and to be a nobody and to die. Not just any death, but the death of a criminal on the cross. 
We see this, when we really begin to see this, it begins to uh, melt our hearts and move our hearts, and we're motivated to make Jesus Lord. We, here's the thing, though. We don't get there without tasting the gospel in our hearts. So it's not simply enough just to know it's true objectively, although that is important. But is it true for you subjectively? In other words, does it move you in any way? And I'm not just talking about emotions. I'm not just talking about crying. I'm not just talking about laughing and being happy. I'm talking about like, is there any sort of like, when you hear about what Jesus has done, is there anything inside you that stirs? Is there a sense of gratitude? Is there a sense of wonder? Why would, why would he? For us? Why, why would he? Is there any of that? That sort of amazement and wonder and deep, deep gratitude. So as, by the way, we can't make, here's the thing, we can't really make that happen for ourselves. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that helps our hearts to begin to taste and see that he is good. So what's our job? Our job is to continually position ourselves to hear. If this morning you're just being honest and saying, it doesn't move me. I, I, I've heard it over and over again, but it doesn't really, and, and if, it can't, if it doesn't move you here, in here, it'll never move you out there. So it doesn't move me. Or some of you, maybe it moves you in here, but it doesn't move you out there. It doesn't compel you when you're in your workplace. It doesn't shape you. It hasn't changed you in any way. Well, I can't, I can't shake you and make the coin drop, but here's what I would say is continue to position yourself to hear the truth of the gospel over and over and over and trust that the Spirit of God can bring it alive so that you can taste and you can see the beauty of Jesus giving up heaven for you. And when we love him most, then we gladly, we gladly worship him. It's not a duty or an obligation to call Jesus Lord. It's a joy. It's a joy to call him Lord. You know, in the Old Testament, when a servant was released from his service to his master, if he wanted to stay, they did something very, they did a very unusual ceremony. They would take the servants and the servant would put his ear against the door of the house and they would pierce his ear and it would be a a mark, a symbol that he doesn't have to serve him anymore or she doesn't have to serve the master anymore, but they choose to. And it's interesting that in the Old Testament, it's the servant who's pierced so that the master can be loved. But when we come to the cross, it's the master who's pierced so that we can say, I don't have to, but I want to. That's a shift you have to make in your faith at some point from I feel like I have to, and if I don't, I'll be in trouble, and I should do it because it's the right thing to I want to. It's actually aligned with my desires. Jesus is the only master who will satisfy you if you submit to him, but he's also the only one who can forgive you if you fail him. No other Lord can do that. And here's the irony of life. We all go around saying, I don't want a Lord, I don't want a Lord, I don't want, I don't want a Lord, but we all choose a Lord. We all choose something that ends up lording over us, that ends up directing our lives and telling us what to do. There's a show on the Discovery Channel that my wife and I have watched for years together called Gold Rush. I don't know if any of you have heard of this show or seen this show. It's modern-day miners, and they're mining in Alaska and Oregon, and uh, it's fascinating. And one of the crews is actually supposed to be a group of Christian guys. And so we watch this show, but it's four, five, maybe six, seven seasons in. Some of them are great at mining. Some of them are horrible at mining. It's just fun to watch. But you watch, like, they're so driven And last year, this young man named Parker, who's in his early 20s, he mined nearly 3,000 ounces of gold. Now, 
I don't know how familiar you are with the value of gold, and I, I don't have the number exactly in my head right now, but let's just say it's, he made more money last summer than maybe this room made together. Like, he made a lot of money, 300,000 ounces of gold. So this year, he comes back for the next season, and this year he wants to make 400,000 ounces of gold, of course. Of course, there's always got to be more, right? He's having a horrible year, and you're watching it. So so let me just, here's what I'm saying. Last year wasn't enough. He got 300,000. You can't just stop, because you've made that thing your God. That accumulation of wealth, that accomplishment, that achievement, you're enslaved to it. You're, you, you can't break free from it. it. It owns you, that drive. So it's not enough. He had 300, now he needs, you always need more. And now that it's not working out, he can barely function. He's angry. He's upset. His team is falling apart. He doesn't know who he is. He's losing his sense of identity. These are what the things that we make Lord, that's what they do to us. But Jesus Christ is the one Lord who, once we taste and see, we're satisfied. It's not that we don't want more, but it's just that there's a satisfaction, a completeness in who he is. There's a rest in him. But also, when we do fail, and we all fail, instead of it crushing us, we, we actually run to him, and he is the hope and the forgiveness that we need. So the gospel is that the Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. Second thing that this text helps us understand is this. How is the gospel unique? So what's unique about the gospel? Verse 10 says that you are made right with God by believing in your heart. We're going to get back to that. But one way in which the gospel is unique is that it's a heart issue. It's a, it's a heart change. Verse 11 said that those who trust in God will never be disgraced. Sin always produces two things. Sin always produces shame and separation. Look at Genesis chapter 3. When sin entered the world, what two things came with it? Immediately shame and separation. Separation from each other, separation from God, separation from creation, the shame of our nakedness. And so sin still produces in our lives shame and separation. But this verse promises us that if we trust in God, our shame is taken away from us. He will not disappoint us. And then verse 12 says something amazing, that God gives generously to all who call on him, no matter their race, their gender, their social standing, their past. And it summarizes pretty much as explicit as it can with this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, you know what that means? It means the worst people too. Now, there are some people who we would say, them too? Do you know what they did? Do you know what they believe? Do you know how they live? Do you know what they did? Do you know how they hurt me? Do you know how they hurt others? Them too? And sometimes it's really a, it's an indicator that we don't really understand the gospel, right? When we start to want to draw lines between people who can call on the Lord and people who can't call on the Lord. So it means that the worst can call, but it also means this. It means that the good people have to call too. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It means that even people who are very moral and upright and contributing to society and seem to really have their act together, even they need to call on the Lord to be saved. Everyone needs to call on the Lord to be saved. The best, the worst, I remember hearing a story years ago, uh, Bill Hybels, who's a pastor of Willow Creek in Chicago, one of the largest evangelical churches in our country, he heard about a story in a penitentiary in Louisiana. And the story was that there was a warden who was a Christian. And this warden, and it was, it's, it's, it's one of the highest security prisons in the state of Louisiana. And this warden decided, you know, these men who society has given up on and sort of 
turned their back on and said, there's no reforming them, there's no helping them. Uh, he decided he wanted to do something about it. So he developed leadership classes for them and began to teach them in leadership. But eventually a local seminary said, we'll teach Bible classes if you'll let us. And they began to teach Bible classes and they began to actually ordain ministers in this jail who began to start their own churches where there are multiple churches in this jail of people who are being discipled and, and led to Jesus. And he went to check it out and he walked into one of the services where there's probably a thousand uh, inmates gathered together singing songs like we sang this morning. And uh, he was so, you know, deeply moved, so deeply moved because the singing was so rich and full and robust and sincere. And afterwards, he, when he was leaving the jail, he turned to the ward and he said, listen, I'm in a big church every Sunday morning. I'm in big events every weekend. I've never heard singing like that. I've never heard singing like that. What was it? And the warden turned to him and said four words. Forgiven much, love much. Forgiven much, love much. Luke 7.47, there's a woman with a very bad reputation. And the disciples are trying to judge her and... and, uh, trying to make her look like the sinner. And Jesus says this to them. He says, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. And I've said this before. It's important that we don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not actually teaching us that there's two categories of people, those who have been forgiven little and those who have been forgiven much. And now let's figure out which one you were in. Let's figure out which one you're in. Jesus is teaching us there's people who live like they've been forgiven little, even though they've been forgiven much. The gospel says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's incredibly unique because there's nothing you've done that disqualifies you and there's nothing you've done that qualifies you. And that's very unique to the gospel. Every other religion offers you a way to save yourself. Here's what you do. Here's the hoops to jump through. Here's the things to do every week. You behave in certain ways, and then you get yourself in. Basically, you save yourself through your own efforts and your good work. But the gospel says you never could. You never could. Why are you trying? You never could. Imagine that, you know, Kurt and I walk into Best Buy together. We both want to buy the same TV. It's a $2,000 TV. I don't even know what you can get for $2,000 anymore. Years ago, $2,000 got you a little tiny TV. Now, TVs are so cheap, relatively speaking. But we, we walk in, and we both want to buy a TV, and I, got, I have $1,900 in my hand, and Kurt has $100 in his hand. And we walk up to the counter and say, we want to buy that TV. And they say, okay, it's $2,000. And I lay down my money, $1,900. He lays down his money, $100. And uh, the clerk says, you don't have enough money. And then... She looks closer and she goes, that's not even real money. That's Monopoly money. And so Kurt and I have walked in with, I have $1,900 of Monopoly money. He has $100 of Monopoly money. Anybody in their right mind would not look at that and go, oh, David, you're so close. You're so close. You just, it's 2000 you have 19 it's so close, right? Someone would go, what is wrong with you two? You can't buy anything with that. And sometimes we, we take our goodness and our efforts and our church attendance and our morality and our sincerity and we take all these things and we go up to God's counter and we lay it down on the counter. And the problem is not that you and I don't have enough of it. The problem is that you and I don't even have the right currency. We don't even have access to it. We need someone else to come 
and make payment for us. And that's the unique truth, unique truth of the gospel. You cannot make yourself righteous before God because your biggest problem is not your behavior, it's your belief, it's your worship, it's your heart. You need a new heart. You can't give yourself a new heart. You need to believe in your heart. You can't make yourself believe. So God acts from the outside on you and breathes life into your heart. And that's the work of the gospel, breathing life into the hearts of dead people so that we can be right with God. So what all this means is that it's an inner change first and then an outer change. It's not the other way around. You do not work yourself in. You get in and then it changes the way that you live. You become a part of the family of God and then you learn how the family lives. You don't get all the family. You know, isn't that how it is when we marry someone? We're trying to figure, you know, you remember the first time you went to your spouse's fam- largest family gathering and you're trying to figure out what's you know, what's everybody laughing about? What's all the, the old uh, sort of inside jokes that they have? Do, how do, you know, who gets to eat first? How, you're just trying to pick up clues and cues as to how do I do this? And, and are we going to pray? Should we, are we going to pray? Are we not going to? And you're just kind of watching everybody trying to get, you know, because you're trying, you're trying to learn. And you think that if you can learn enough things, then eventually they'll accept you as one of theirs. And that's normal in every single arena of life except when it comes to the gospel. The gospel says you get in because Jesus was sent out. You get in. And once you're in, now do life with people and watch and learn and grow and the spirit will change you. It's not earn your way in, it's receive the invitation you've been graciously given. So what is the gospel? It's, it's, it's that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. How is the gospel unique? Everyone who calls on the Lord's name will be, will be saved. We don't earn our way in. But lastly this morning, as I come to a close, how is the gospel central? How is the gospel central? And I actually want to leave this text in Romans. Not that it's not here, but I, I want to read you this passage from 1 Corinthians because this is one of the most important passages in the New Testament when it comes to the gospel, and it's not one of the main texts for the next nine weeks. So I want you to hear it this morning. Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he says this. He says, let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you. Do you know what good news is synonymous with? The gospel. In fact, next week when Jason Foster teaches on Sunday morning, he's going to teach you that the gospel is not good advice, it's good news. That's your statement next week. So you, I don't want to step on his toes. I want to I leave him room. So I'm not going to say anything more than the good news is the gospel. So Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel. In fact, it can be argued that the majority of Paul's writings was reminding people who already knew the gospel of the gospel. You know, all Paul's, write, all Paul's letters were to churches. All of his letters were to believers. And all he's really doing over and over is rooting behavior change in the gospel. If you watch, if you see a pattern of Paul's letters, he front loads his letters with uh, gospel reminders, what you might call the indicative, the why. Here's the why. Gospel. But then he back loads his letters with gospel responses. If that's true, then here's how you should live. That's really how Paul tends to write his letter. So he's doing it here. I want to remind you of the good news I preached to you. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. Listen, if you are a longtime Christian, you feel like you've been in church your entire life, let me encourage you, continue to stand firm in the gospel. 
Stand firm in the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. You don't graduate from the gospel. We don't move beyond the gospel. The gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A through Z of Christianity. So we, not just, we don't just welcome it, but we stand firm in it. It's in this good, it is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. Which, quite honestly, in a lot of churches, this is happening. People are hearing false gospels. They're placing their hope in it. And it's not really true to begin with them. One of the false gospels they hear is, if you're good, God will love you. That's a false gospel. But they believe that. It doesn't save them. He goes on to say, I passed on to you what was most important. What Paul is saying here, I think, is this is, he's saying this is central, right? This is central. Most important, what has also been passed on to me. Here's the gospel summarized. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. So the gospel is of first importance. It's central. The gospel is central to all Christian growth. We do not believe our way in and then work our way forward. Paul wrote the whole letter of Galatians to rebuke that heresy. You foolish Galatians. Who has, he uses this very uh, provocative verb, who has bewitched you? Who has bewitched you? Do you think that was what was begun by the Spirit is now going to be carried to completion through your efforts, through the works of the flesh? The gospel doesn't just get us in, it grows us up. And actually, that is going to be week four, so I'll stop there. All spiritual growth is connected to growing and deepening belief in the gospel. We must keep the gospel in the center of our lives, Christians. Otherwise, we risk motivating ourselves to act and look like Christians for lesser reasons, for for other reasons. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, um, old, old revivalist preacher, brilliant, brilliant preacher and writer, he, he wrote something one time about the difference between true virtue and common virtue. And it changed, me, it changed the way I understood things radically. This is what he said. He started by saying, the reasons beneath all of our sin are, tend to be one of two things. This is a simplification, but it's helpful. Fear or pride. Beneath all of our sin is either fear or pride. Either on one hand we're trying to protect ourselves... Or on the other hand, we're trying to prove ourselves. So beneath all of our sin, Jonathan Edwards is saying, is fear or pride. And then he goes on to talk about true virtue versus common virtue. And he says common virtue, which is good living and right living and moral living, it it can look like the Christian life. But if you look beneath common virtue, you're going to find the exact same motivations, fear and pride. And so we do this with certain things. You know, we motivate people to live right because we say, if you don't live right, you'll go to hell. If you don't live right, you'll be found out. If you don't, I'm not saying those things are untrue. I'm just saying what you're doing is you're motivating the fear in someone's heart. But the scriptures teaches that perfect love casts out fear. Fear is not a tool of the gospel. Fear is a tool of the enemy. So if you're only behaving like a Christian because you're afraid of what people will think of you if they don't realize you are what you look like you are, did that make sense? Then you really are just in the common virtue category. That's what Jonathan Edwards is saying. Or pride. We want to impress people with our righteousness. We think of the Pharisees, of course, in the New Testament who went on with their prayers and went on and wore their righteousness literally around their, their necks and showed off, you know, 
And, and so Edward says there has to be a change from common virtue to true virtue. And, and that's why we have to stand in the gospel. Because if we're not reminding our hearts of the gospel, we'll start doing the right, we'll keep doing the right things. But before we know it, we'll be doing it for the wrong reasons. The gospel deals with your fear because it invites you to rest in Jesus' finished work on your behalf. Unmerited, undeserved, but unchanging. But the gospel also deals with your pride because it shows you Jesus had to do it for you. You see how it kills both in one, in one swift kick? It destroys both. Because on one hand, what do you have to fear? Jesus has done the work for you. Receive his work on your behalf. But on the other hand, how can you be prideful? Jesus did it for you. You didn't do it for yourself. How can pride and fear run rampant in the life of the believer? And I recognize that at times we all struggle with those things. But the gospel is the solution. We never move beyond the gospel. We always move further into it. The gospel is the power to save, according to Romans 1.16. It continues to bear fruit in the lives of God's children, according to Colossians 1.6. The gospel is unique and central to Christianity. Let me, we're going to pray and finish, but let me just give you this sort of practical application to what you've heard this morning. You probably have friends in your life or people that you work with that know you go to church. Um, most likely they know you go to church. And they've probably wonder, because it's actually not normative in our country to go to church, uh, they probably wonder, why do you go to church? And the way that we answer that question is really important. I think we need to have an answer that actually is unique. Not just, oh, I go to church because it helps me. Well, I hope it does. Or I go to church because it's the right thing to do. Okay. I go to church because I learn helpful things. Or I go to church because I know people there that I like hanging out with. Or I go to church because it helps me. Even, even things generic like I go to church because it helps me connect with God. I'm not saying those things aren't true. But I want to encourage you as we go through this series to think, what is, so, what is such a unique answer that it couldn't be confused for any other religion? Because every answer I just gave you could be true of why do you go to that synagogue? Why do you go to that mosque? Why do you go? I mean, nothing we've, I've said so far is unique to why do you go to a church that believes the gospel? So why do we do what we do? You know, they might, your friends probably think, you know, it's just you're religious, you want to be a good person, but none of those things are unique to Christianity. They might think your life is built around your church attendance or your whatever, but the center of Christianity is not about you or me, it's about Jesus and what he's done. And so maybe we can ask the Spirit this week, hey, the next time someone at work says, what do you do every Sunday morning? And I say, well, I, I go to church. Why do you go to church? Well, you know, have something, have, a, have, a, have an answer ready for the hope that you have. And don't preach at them and make them feel miserable because they don't go to church. We're very bad at expecting people who have not been converted to try and live like us. There's no power to do so. We struggle enough as it is, and we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. We're trying to get people who, who, whose hearts are dead in their sin. We want them to look like us. It doesn't work that way. So be gracious in your interactions in these conversations, but be ready with an answer that communicates something more than just because I'm a good person or because I want to be a good person, but because I believe that Jesus did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And my whole life is saying thank you. My whole life is saying thank you for who you are and for what you've done. You know, something simple that we can share. Because the gospel is unique and central to Christianity, we need to understand it, we need to live it, and we need to share it with others. Let's pray together.